0: One of the things that we've been considering in the last number of weeks is the idea of belief or faith or trust. And one of the things that we've seen is not all belief or faith is created equal. Uh, There's some that will make a profession of what they believe about something, but in reality their hearts aren't embracing that at all. Sometimes the appearance of belief or faith or trust is betrayed by actually the inner workings of the heart of what somebody is actually relying upon or trusting in in and of themselves and Jesus is coming into a society where there has been a kind of a divorce between an outward profession of faith of a belief in God a belief in his law a belief in his revelation through The covenant that he made with Moses, having the Old Testament to the Jews. There's been a divorce between what has been professed to be believed. But in reality, there has been this context of kind of building a wall around hearts that actually aren't believing it. There's an interest in Christ as he's performing miracles. He's working signs and doing all kinds of things. He's teaching with authority in a way that people had not seen He's exercising authority over illness, over the physical realm. He's exercising authority over the spiritual realm. He's uh, claiming that he has the power of God to be able to forgive sin. He, he's doing so many things, and people are starting to see this, and they're coming to him. We saw at the end of John chapter 2 that many believed in his name, but he wouldn't entrust himself to them. And then comes Nicodemus at night. And that's that's where we are. we are. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus has come. So in John chapter 2 your Bible go ahead and open to John chapter 3 but here's a little bit of context John chapter 2 verses 22 to 25 introduced the reality that there is a kind of faith or trust in Jesus which Jesus doesn't then in turn entrust himself to because it says there that he knows what is in man remember John chapter 2 verse 23 you can look back there really quickly it says many trusted in his name but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people Jesus omnisciently knows the ontology of man. He knows the stuff that man is made of. He knows the deepest recesses and secrets of our heart more intimately than we do. He knows us exhaustively, inside and out. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our loves. He knows our desires. He knows our inner motivations. He knows our minds and the very depths of our souls. In Jesus' encounter then, where we're at now, uh, in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, you see there in verses 1-6 through that he reveals a kind of faith, trust, belief in men that he entrusts himself to. Not merely a fleshly, intellectual trust that Jesus performed signs or one that is merely focused on outward appearances, but a Holy Spirit trust a Holy Spirit-given belief or faith that comes from, not flesh, it comes from being born again or born from above. Seeing and entering God's kingdom all depends on whether or not we're born again. The flesh is of no help. Having a new life given to us by the Holy Spirit is the only hope. That we would be qualified to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. The trust to which Jesus entrusts himself is one that comes from being a new man. Having a new heart. Having a new mind. We often describe this in Christian circles as regeneration. It's just the phrase. Being born again. Born from above. Change. Change by the Holy Spirit, in the heart, in the deepest recesses of our affections and of our loves, and it precedes faith. We see here, we don't know where it comes from or where it goes, God alone bestows the gift of this being born again. And then that particular belief that we see here that derives from that born again nature of a heart is then what is qualified, for the kingdom. John's drawing the contrast between the unregenerate, or not born again, belief of John chapter 2, and the regenerate, or born again, belief that Jesus has been instructing Nicodemus in. At the beginning of John chapter 3. Look at verses 14 through 15 of chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life In him. The tip of the spear, as it were, for eternal life. For qualification to be in the kingdom of God without fear of condemnation and perishing eternally in the just wrath of God. The the tip of the spear is the cross of Christ. That he would be lifted up. That even as the Israelites looked at the serpent raised up on the pole, so we look to Christ. And there we see that everyone who believes... In him, with that born-again belief that Jesus died for our sins Is qualified for eternal life So our text this morning takes this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus And it seems that the Apostle John here then is applying What we should learn from that here in verses 16 through 21 Look at chapter 3 of John, verse 16 and 21 This is what we're considering this morning This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, necessary, and sufficient word. And I pray that the Lord would write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. Here's the big idea of the text. Main point. Turn from your love of darkness that leads to condemnation to the love of God in Christ that leads to salvation. that's not just a message for unbelievers in the room it's a message to believers as well because once we come to a knowledge of christ we still struggle with the temptation of sin to be covered under the darkness of this world that truth abounds to each of us turn from your love of darkness that leads to condemnation to the love of god in christ leads to salvation. I have three points from the text. Number one, two destinations. Number two, two loves. Number three, two ways to live. Two destinations, salvation and condemnation. Two loves, God's love and man's love. And then finally, two ways to live, hiding sin or exposing sin. Number one, two destinations, salvation and and condemnation. We cannot outrun the weightiness and significance of our lives. If we do, we will eventually be confronted with the reality that our hearts are steeped in, kind of a denial of reality. And emotionally and psychologically, we often can't handle it. Anything that life is simply whatever we make of it, either meaningless, (coughs) utility, or it's a meaning rooted in kind of a subjective autonomy. The things that we're often tempted to reject in the intellectual ignorance of our youth eventually hits us square in the face when when we become adults. There's a whole bunch of things that we didn't know in our childhood that when you become an adult, you become confronted with. You just have to deal with it. There's no way around it, whether you like it or not. Here's the point. The reality that we all have to be confronted with is that God exists. Heaven and hell exist. And God's judgment is coming, certainly. This reality its going to hit all of us square in the face, whether or not we want to admit it. The reality of heaven and hell and of God's coming judgment confronts us in the midst of a world that preaches meaninglessness or uh, 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 an autonomy where you can define your self-existence. And friends, we need to stop being tempted towards playing childish games thinking that the meaning of our lives is something that we actually have the authority to determine. The choice isn't up to us. And when our imaginary world that we try to build fails to satisfy us, or when our subjective meaning that we have defined about who we are in our existence is exposed as a mirage, we often will fly into self-harm in despair or we'll double down in ignorance sometimes violently lashing out at those who would confront us with truth as we try to dethrone god and put ourselves in his place jesus though he is the light of the truth of god that exposes the darkness of our temptations towards giving into these lies the first truth that God confronts the darkness of man here in this text is the truth of condemnation. Look at verses 16 to 18 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son. In the Greek it's only begotten, only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Verses 17 through 18, man's chief problem is condemnation from God. And man's chief need is salvation from God's just condemnation. This is the diagnosis of our soul's diseases, of our soul's sickness, and this is the only cure, Jesus Christ. Jesus knew the hearts of men, and John is making it plain here that our hearts are evil. The idea that human hearts are a tabula rasa, the Latin phrase, blank slate, it's a lie. Before the all-seeing eyes of God, before the all-knowing, one true and living God, There are no innocent hearts. There are no innocent lives. From the sweetest child among us to the kindest grandmother. Friends, we all have a problem. We are all, in our sins, condemned already. An amazing thing about the human heart is that if you do some self-examination long enough, your conscience will actually agree with this. In the way that we condemn ourselves so often. It's not hard to do. If you put yourself in a place quietly in isolation, someplace, you start thinking about your lives, you start thinking about how you've stewarded your responsibilities, when you start thinking about your relationships, the condemnation flows in like a river. We haven't done what we should have done, and we have done what we shouldn't. Right? And we we numb The pain of this thought with busyness, with scrolling on social media, with work, relationships, hobbies, and on. We're really bad at taking time to examine the reality of the situation. Every man-made solution to this condemnation leaves us empty and despairing. And deep down, we know that we deserve condemnation for our wrongs. We long for justice, So often we long for justice of the wicked that are outside of us, but friends, when we long for justice, it also teaches us that we ought to long for it against ourselves, for the wrongs that we have done. Jesus didn't come to give us a cheap fix that's the equivalent of putting a band-aid on cancer. Jesus came to powerfully confront the depth of the condemnation that we deserve, that reaches to the deepest recesses Of our hearts and the depravity of our sins, (coughs) to the end that no sin would have the power to be able to condemn those who are in Christ in the face of God's just condemnation. Look at the description of the condemnation there in verse 16. The word there, perish. This simply means to be cut off and to die. And the contrast there, look at the contrast there. It's not perish, but eternal life. The description of perish here isn't described as eternal, but that's exactly what this is. Jesus describes the, the condemnation of sinners as perishing in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, as going to the unquenchable fire of hell. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24 describes those who perish in hell as those whose worm shall not die. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 plainly teaches that the condemnation is an eternal destruction. Jude chapter 1, verse 7 describes this as a punishment of eternal fire. God's condemnation of eternal perishing in hell, it's a terrifying truth. This is not the annihilationism that somehow... For those that are outside of Christ, lost in their sins, condemned under the judgment of God, just cease to exist. No, they go on to eternally perish in the just wrath of God in hell. These aren't games. Jesus didn't come to play games. He came to confront a real problem of condemnation with a real solution of salvation through him. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 verse 11 describes that the torments of this condemnation will be forever and ever having no rest day or night. And the torments of hell are not merely spiritual but they're also physical. Remember the way that Jesus described in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. To not fear those who can kill the body here, but him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's not some kind of amorphous suffering of A spiritual nature alone, but it's physical, eternally. At the final resurrection, all will be raised with a glorified body. And those in Christ, the glorified body, will be able to be in the presence of God without fear of condemnation, supping with the King of kings and Lord of lords in his eternal kingdom forever. Full fellowship, full invitation to his presence in the greatness of his glory and joy. But those that are outside of Christ will be raised with a glorified body unto eternal condemnation to bear up a physical condemnation and punishment in hell unto eternity. Friends, this is hard for sinners like us to hear. The thought that we or those whom we love would face God's condemnation of perishing in the torments of God's wrath in hell forever to our sinful hearts it seems unjust it feels unfair unloving, unmerciful but friends, this only exposes how blind our hearts are to the holiness of God and to the seriousness of our sins against him friends, we are not more just than God we are not more loving than God. We are not more merciful than God, and we aren't more uh, autonomous. We aren't autonomous creatures that are self-created and self-made beings. We were made to reflect what God is like. So there is a responsibility laid upon all humanity as image-bearers to reflect what God is like. And what we haven't, and we n- none of us have, we deserve an eternal punishment because we have sinned. Against an eternal God, even in Adam and Eve, just eating fruit. Not believing the truth of God's word. Did he really say? And Adam and Eve's seemingly insignificant thought and action of eating forbidden fruit corrupted the hearts of all who would come after them. And earned uh, eternal condemnation for us all. And not only do we inherit sin nature from them, but we have chosen sin in our lives. Because, in the language that John uses here, we have loved darkness the same as them. After Adam and Eve, there is no state of innocence. And we are all, as John describes here, condemned already. Condemnation here is synonymous with, in verse 10, not understanding, not receiving the testimony of the we or the us, the plurality of Jesus, of the Trinity. Verse 11 Not believing in verse 18 Loving darkness in verse 19 Doing wickedness In verse 20 Not coming to Christ in verse 20 And not being willing to have our sin exposed In verse 21 That's what the condemnation is for And the cure for the diagnosis Is Christ That is the cure Our only hope The only hope kids For your sin Is Jesus Christ The only hope for any adult Young or old in this room Is Jesus Christ John chapter 3 verse 17 For God did not send his son into the world To condemn the world But in order that the world might be saved Through him Salvation. God would have been just to send Jesus Christ to go ahead and condemn the world. To go ahead and usher in the final judgment of God. Where all would be finally and fully held to account for the consequences of their sin. This condemnation. This perishing eternally in hell. And yet God sent his son. This time in the incarnation. Not to condemn, but to save. So that we would be sitting in this room, about 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, hearing of the only solution to the just condemnation of God that we deserve is through Jesus Christ alone. The solution to our condemnation to eternally perish for our sins is, is salvation through the one and only Son. It's exclusive. There's only one way. And the occasion for all of this was what Jesus said to Nicodemus, look at verses 14 through 15 again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is the Son of Man who was lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And eternal life here is synonymous, look at verse 3, of of seeing, verse 5, seeing or entering the kingdom, God's kingdom. And telling this to a Pharisee, telling this to a Jew, would have been shocking. We are sons of the kingdom. Nicodemus could have re- responded. And Jesus says, oh, don't be, don't be deceived. The only entrance to the kingdom is through me, Jesus Christ. A saving trust in Christ, it's not just amazement at his signs and wonders, looking at the miracles and being, thinking, wow. It's not just saying that Jesus was a great man or a good teacher. It's not even saying that Jesus died for sin and rose again. It's acknowledging that he died with a uniquely personal connection for my sins. And the sins of all of those who would trust in him. We'll consider this a little bit more in a minute. But the difference between unregenerate and regenerate faith, not born again and born again faith in Christ, is the kind that actually trusts and believes in his life, death, and resurrection so confidently that they're willing to expose their sins, plainly acknowledging them in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10-11 through 11, describes this faith as a godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. The Apostle Paul continues, it's an eagerness for forgiveness, it's an indignation at my sins, it's an agreement with God's anger and condemnation against my sins, it's an acknowledgment of a fear before God's just condemnation, a longing for salvation through Jesus Christ, a zeal to be killing my sin, and a plain acknowledgement of the eternal punishment that sin deserves. Born again faith in Jesus Christ looks like being able to be confronted with our sin. When somebody tells me I'm, I'm a sinner, when Jesus would confront me, when I read through the Bible and he would confront me, With my sin, I don't bristle at that. I don't fight back against that. I receive it because it's true. Because it shows me that I have no hope in myself. That he is the only way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the eternal condemnation of God that we deserve for our sins, we acknowledge that. We turn from that sin and trust in Jesus Christ. To the end that Jesus teaches later that we listen when a brother or sister tells us of our sin. By acknowledging our sin, trusting in Christ, even when it comes up, and I'm unaware of it, and a brother or sister in the church comes and confronts me about it, one-to-one, or maybe a couple along with them, maybe bring it to the church. A spirit-given, born-again nature receives that and repents. Regenerate faith welcomes correction. Born again trust in Christ looks like welcoming feedback that exposes the darkness where my sin loves to hide. Friends, I don't often do this well. God given trust, God given faith or belief looks like not being offended and lashing out in anger, gossip, blame shifting, slander campaigns when my sin is exposed. No regenerate, born-again faith in Christ, doesn't think that I am better than anybody else. No, it's the opposite. I think I'm worse than everybody else because I know my sin more intimately than I know yours. That's why I examine the log in my eye before I go to help a brother with his sin. And I know the condemnation that I deserve for my sin that I have committed against the one true living God. So I look to Christ and trust that his perishing upon the cross was sufficient to satisfy the perishing that I deserve for my sins. Regenerate belief in Christ is objective both in the truth that it's acknowledging these realities, these truths about who Jesus is, what he taught and what he did, what he accomplished, but also it's objective in the truth of an actual changed life. I thought about this last week. Can anybody really change? The answer is Yes. By the Holy Spirit of the one true and living God, humbled by God's mercy and grace, led to repentance because of God's kindness in Christ. And the salvation that he gives is eternal life here in this text. This doesn't mean that life in this world is easy if we have Christ, if we have forgiveness for our sins, if we have the gift of Christ as an expression of God's love for us. It doesn't mean that we won't face anything that's frightening. Oh, we will. We may be afraid of where our feet have to take us today as we put them on the ground when we get up in the morning. But no matter what we have to face, whether it's cancer, whether it's a high-risk pregnancy, whether it's chronic pain, strained relationships, conflict at work, weariness of, of parenting, Sorrow for children who have rejected Christ Persecution from this world Or even facing death itself Friends, if we have salvation in Christ If we have forgiveness for our sins through Jesus Christ If we have escape through Jesus Of the eternal just condemnation of God Of perishing in hell Then we don't have to be afraid of these things That are frightening in this world this is the only cure for our souls diseases the only thing that we can establish our feet upon as a firm foundation to face the trials and difficulties of life in a fallen and sinful world until we have God's Son Jesus Christ rest for our souls be constantly fleeting heaven and hell are not primarily about being in a physical place but being in a right relationship to God, either the relationship of condemned or saved. Friends, repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ alone and have your salvation in Him alone. Second point, my second two points are shorter than my first, but second point two actions God's love and man's love. Look at the action of God in verse 16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only, one and only son. And again, there in the Greek, it's begotten, only begotten son. It's the same language of the begotten son of John chapter 1. Now look at verse 19, the action of man. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. My friends, God loved a sinful world, and people love evil deeds. That's the contrast. Two loves. Two actions, and the love of God, the sacrifice of His one and only Son. The chief definition of love is sacrifice for a certain outcome, an action of an expression for the good of something else. And so men are dying after the things that they love. In sin and darkness. Now think about the powerful contrast in this passage. God's love for the world is expressed in giving one Savior. There's not multiple Saviors. There's one Savior. And there's there's one Savior as the chief expression of God's sacrificial love for his people. And notice that God here is shorthand for the Father. And it's in that masculine pronoun, his, God gave his son. This passage should confront the wrong ways that we often think about God the Father. We can be tempted to think about God the Father as unloving and unmerciful. And yet this passage confronts us with that often wrong assumption about who God the Father is. The gospel isn't merely an expression of the love of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, but it's also an expression of the love of the Father. The Father is not somehow divorced from the Son and the Holy Spirit. The gospel is Trinitarian and its expression of the Father's love together with the Son and the Spirit. And at first it seems like God's love here is more of a general love for every individual in the world, but it becomes clear that the saving effect of God's love isn't for everybody. Not everybody comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The offer is there for all people. And we see this in the universal application of the preaching of the gospel. We call that the general call. Now, we take the gospel to all nations. Because we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the instrument that God uses by his spirit to save sinners. God's love doesn't lead to the salvation of everyone in the world in a universalistic sense, though, that everyone is saved. So is a general call in the preaching of the gospel to all peoples throughout all the world, all ethnicities, all tribes and tongues and languages, all, uh, all peoples. But there is an effectual call, and that is when the gospel takes root in the hearts of those that repent and believe among the nations. His love leads to the salvation only of those who believe in Jesus Christ in a more limited and definite sense. And here's the amazing thing about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's able to save all of those who receive it. All of those who believe here in this text. So we share the message of the gospel with everybody. Knowing that this is how God regenerates sinners. is through the hearing of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit takes the message of the gospel, applies it to the heart, and causes it to be born again. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The, the good news, the message of the life, death, and resurrection, the good news, gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's not the people who save that bring the gospel. It's not the person that saves themselves by merely believing in the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit using the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to powerfully confront the sin and the condemnation and the perishing that the sinner knows they deserve through hearing the gospel message. To turn from self, to turn from loving of darkness to loving God in response to his love in Christ. Salvation is not limited to ethnicity, Jewish, or any other. And the only thing that is able to save, we see here, again, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not our perfect posture or demeanor, being afraid sometimes as we seek to share the gospel with other people, and we might get it wrong. Oh, I should have said that more clearly. Oh, I failed. They're not going to be saved. No, it's, it's the message of God's just condemnation that we deserve for our sins. And how he has powerfully met that with the only thing that can satisfy his wrath, his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to get all the cultural references right somehow to get people to understand the gospel better. The only context that is needed for somebody to understand in order to understand the gospel is their own heart. The gospel has universal relevance to all people in the sense that they are all condemned already. And it's only by the means of the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that anybody's saved. That's why even you see God's meticulous sovereignty described a little bit later in Romans chapter 9, but in the following chapter, listen to how he describes the necessity of the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, it says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Praise God. Friends, I know that many of you have shared the gospel with friends and loved ones that you know before, and you haven't seen the, the gospel taken by the Spirit and give new life to those whom you love. And I know that that at times has been a discouragement to us. And we'll, think, we'll be tempted to think, well, I, you know, sharing the gospel, it, it doesn't actually have the effect that I desire to see. So, and, and I'm not seeing the fruit that I want to see, and so I'm just going to hold off. I'm not going to share the gospel as much as I, as I used to in zeal. Friends, that's being deceived by Satan. Being deceived by our own sin. Jesus has said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And this is one of the reasons why God has brought us together as a church. To be equipped for the work of the ministry. Both in edifying each other, building each other up in our faith in Christ. But then being equipped then to take the gospel out into our spheres of Relationships. Your friends and the people that you engage with in your life, you may be the only person that knows Jesus Christ among that group. God has uniquely called you unto himself, that you would experience and taste the beauty of salvation in Jesus Christ. The beauty of his effectual love to save you from your sins and his just condemnation for them. That you might be a mouthpiece of the beauty of the gospel to those that you know and love. And faithfulness doesn't look like seeing your desired outcome of them coming to faith. But God will save some of them. Don't grow weary in sharing the gospel, brothers and sisters. And even with those whom you've already shared with. Maybe they've rejected, but friends, share again. Tell of the beauty of Jesus Christ, again, to those whom you know and love. This time of Christmas time, you're going to be around friends or family, perhaps, that you aren't always around. So take the opportunity to speak of the beauty of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And you tee it up as, a, as an invitation. Come with me. Come with us to the kingdom through Christ. Jesus' final answer to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, about looking to him as Israel looked to the serpent that was lifted up, is telling us about how people are born again. Receiving Jesus as a loving gift from God, looking to him as he was nailed to a cross and died for the sake of our sins, trusting in him, trusting in his death upon the cross, grounding our lives by faith in him, repenting of our love of darkness, coming into the light of his beloved Son. And Jesus made it plain to Nicodemus that unless he is born again, he can't see or enter the kingdom of God. Without a new heart, all is lost. Without a new mind transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, there is no hope. Without new affections and new love for God through Christ, the presence of God only means condemnation for me. But with a new heart, with a new mind, new affections and, and love for God through Christ as a gift the gift of God's presence through His Son, Jesus Christ, thats salvation. But if you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, acknowledge your sins, confess it to Him. Talk with me, talk with somebody that you came with, a friend or a member of the church, about how you desire to have a hope, a certain salvation in Jesus Christ. We'd love to talk with you about the gospel. Kids in the room, if you want to have Christ as your savior talk with your parents or talk with me, talk with another member in the room about how you can be forgiven for your sins and receive this gift of God's love through Christ turn from your love of darkness and receive the love of God that alone is able to save and then in response to his love for us we are enabled by his spirit to love him back We love because he first loved us in Jesus Christ. The third point is this. There's two ways to live. Hiding in sin or exposing sin. Two destinations. Condemnation. Salvation. Two actions. God's love. Man's love. Finally, two ways to live. Hiding sin or exposing it. The physical and spiritual approach of Nicodemus to Jesus under the cover of darkness led to a, a powerful encounter with the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In these final verses, we see a plain picture of what born-again, regenerate, trust, faith, belief in God looks like. Look at verses 19-21. This is the verdict The decision, the judgment Light has come into the world But people love darkness instead of light Because their deeds were evil Everyone who does evil hates the light Will not come into the light For fear that their deeds will be exposed But whoever lives by the truth Comes into the light So that it may be seen plainly That what they have done Has been done in the sight of God it's helpful for us to have our sin exposed. It doesn't feel that way. We hate it. We want to look good in front of other people. Now think about the self contradiction that that is, though. We think and we treasure so often in our lives the reputation or the that we have with other people or the opinion that other people have of us more than we treasure the opinion of God. But friends, when other human beings see us for what we truly are, in our sins, it's helpful for us to remember that God sees everything. The Christian church should not be a place where you are embarrassed about sharing your sins. With each other Exposing our sins to the light of Jesus Christ Because we know that when our sin is exposed It shows us plainly that we have nothing to contribute to our salvation It shows us that our only hope Is that somehow we would have forgiveness for our sins through Jesus Christ In the sight of God What are the ways that the sight of men Would exercise a more powerful influence and control over our lives than considering the sight of God, that He knows everything about me. The difference between an unbelieving expression of belief and a born again expression of belief, trust, faith is that we see our sins. There's a sense in which a church and Christians aren't different from the world. We're sinners just like everybody else. We're not better than anybody else. The difference should be that we see our sin, we acknowledge it, and we hate it. The resplendent, glorious light of Jesus Christ shines upon the darkness of our hearts and of our lives, exposes our sin so that it can be dealt with. That's the whole point of the idea of church discipline as well, as we've thought about a bunch in the life of a church, is that the sin would be brought to light so that it would be dealt with in the cross of Christ before the final judgment of God, and we would be cast into eternal perishing condemnation in hell. It's not joyful when our sin is exposed. It can be painful, but it's beautiful in the sense that it drives us outside of hoping in ourselves. And hoping in Jesus Christ. This is the posture not of a one-time profession of faith at the beginning of becoming a Christian. But this is the posture of the entire Christian life. Repentance. Humility in the face of my sinful temptation to give in to loving darkness again and again. And turning again and again from that darkness. And trusting in Jesus Christ. Trying to kill my sin. Trusting not in my work, but in the work of Jesus Christ alone for the sake of my salvation. And think about this as well. God loves you and me to the point he loves us enough to expose our sins. It's loving to confront people with truth. It's loving to confront people with the truth of their sin And I'm not saying we do this in some type of vindictive Destructive way to tear everybody down in our life No But when somebody is walking in sin It's a very loving thing to do To tell them you are walking in a manner That is not reflecting That you're trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ And I fear for your soul Do we have that kind of relationship with each other? Pray that we would. Because that's what the love of God in Christ looks like to us. He loves us enough to expose our sin so that he can deal with it by nailing it to the cross in his the son. There's two ways to live. Loving our sins so much that we just continually hide in darkness. Receiving the love of God And loving him because he first loved us in Christ So much That even though I'm a sinner I love having it exposed Because it drives me to my only Savior Jesus Christ He is glorious He is beautiful To save a sinner like me And like you Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you love us enough to expose that not all all belief is created equal. That there have been times when we have professed trust in you, but our hearts have been far from you. Now, Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, By confronting us in our sin and driving us to Christ, because he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. So, Father, we pray that you would save, even as we see our sin exposed, even as we lovingly talk with friends and family about what their sin deserves in hell. Not because we're better than them, but we want them to have the same Savior that we have, the only hope of salvation before the final judgment equip us for these things. Help us to not think about these things wrongly. And we pray that you would build us up in our most holy faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.